Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. On today's New Statesman podcast, Anush, Stephen and I discuss the second lockdown in England. And you ask us, how is Angela Rayner doing as Labour's deputy leader? In case you've been um, living under a stone for the weekend, just to, to let you know, England is heading into another lockdown on Thursday night, pending approval from the House of Commons. Boris Johnson disrupted everyone's Halloween. He disrupted my pumpkin carving to make the announcement on Saturday night. And he nearly disrupted Strictly Come Dancing. But then the big discussion this week, as well as the fact that this was called for by SAGE on the 21st of September and was called for by the Labour leader, Keir Starmer, and has already been implemented in Wales as a short circuit breaker. There's also now the, the question over whether there'll be a big Tory rebellion over it. It's still likely to pass, but it's really dividing the Conservative Party. And we have Nigel Farage announcing that he's going to relaunch his party as Reform UK to launch a, an anti-lockdown party. I suppose to start off with, Stephen, should we just talk about the decision itself to implement another lockdown? You, you made the point over the weekend that this is simultaneously viewed as a major government failure, especially because this was called for quite a while back and the government was poo-pooing the idea until very recently, much to the embarrassment of Tory MPs. But at the same time... This decision isn't that different to the action taken by lots of European countries. So should we be viewing this as a as a government failure or is it actually just completely in line with the the Western European trend? I mean I think it's both, right? Like all of the Western European democracies have had to go back into lockdown. And that is because whether you have a very effective ability to trace fresh cases of the novel coronavirus, as they do in Germany, a sort of middling one as they do in France. Actually, Wales has managed to clear 80% fairly consistently with its tracing of contacts. What none of these countries have is the ability to centrally isolate new cases. So if you are in Taiwan or South Korea, or in actually even in Japan, which hasn't had, had a formal lockdown, right, you still have the you know, state provision to centrally isolate. So you don't get a text and go, by the way, you can apply for money, please stay indoors. 
a van turns up outside your house and goes like, Gideon loses, it's time to go to the Premier Inn for two weeks. <laughs> like, and, I was thinking that phrase right before you said it. Yeah, I mean, I, I just as obituarists view the world through the dead and the pre-dead, I view the world through the opportunity for a Mean Girls quote and the state mm. after having done a Mean Girls quote. <laughs> None of the European democracies have, have, have done this. None of them have really tried. And they've all kind of sort of then ended up blundering back into lockdown because we know that unless you are willing to allow your healthcare system to be overwhelmed or you are a young country, you end up in some form of lockdown, right? I, I'm sure that, yeah, logically, we must have some lockdown skeptics listening to this podcast. And some people will go like, oh, what about Sweden? Well, in Sweden, they have social distancing, right? They have a bunch of restrictions on their movement, right? It is less prescribed. And so a lot more of it is guidance rather than law, but they have a lockdown by any reasonable stretch of the definition. So yeah, it's kind of both, right? Like we haven't done miles and miles worse than most other Western European states, but we've also shown no indication or appetite to learn from either our own failings or like the intriguing thing about the last fortnight, if you follow French news, is literally at every point, France, who obviously the disease came to them slightly earlier, so they've always been further up, would would do something it wouldn't work. And at exactly the point than like, so with the tier system, at exactly the point that Macron was having to go, this scale now goes up to dark red. We were like mm -hmm. going, we will have a tier system, which then of course briefly went up to like 3.5 or some nonsense, right? Like, And so yeah, it's both, right? Like it is a, a European wide failure, but I don't think that that means, as some would suggest, then you can just go, oh, well, they tried. Oh, the poor Europeans. Like there is, I think, a collective failure. I think the fact that it's European wide makes it interesting because it means some of the explanations for why don't quite work. But I think it is nonetheless a avoidable failure. Yeah, I suppose I suppose it's a problem of of scale rather than of type that all of these countries are encountering the same problems and there isn't an obvious model to point to in another Western country where a country has managed to avoid a second lockdown altogether by having a very good test trace and isolate system but I suppose the difference is just in quite how bad your economic recession is and um, quite how long your lockdown is as well as how many deaths there are and I think that it could be in in those degrees that's potentially where the the government failure on the second lockdown would be because as you say Germany does have a pretty good test trace and isolate system and it it is going into a lockdown of sorts with restaurants and bars closing for all of November. But I feel like Germany's been doing much better in lots of ways in terms of deaths and the economy. But I think that that lockdown is better sort of understood in terms of that's an example of exactly what a lockdown is for, where it really should be working in lockstep with your test trace and isolate system. So in Germany, as well as the warnings that the health system could be overrun if it continued on trajectory. It's it's really just a question of the numbers getting so big that it became difficult even for their very effective system to have the capacity to track all cases and get people to isolate. So they kind of need to bring those numbers down a bit so that their system can continue to work effectively. So you're kind of using lockdown as the blunt lever to sort of complement a good testing and tracing system whereas here we've never had a very good testing and tracing system it hasn't been working very well the entire time 
so even though it has I mean I know that like government people can can write in to complain about that because they are testing you know huge numbers of people but it has never really been working fast enough or at sufficient capacity to really keep a handle on the entire nationwide spread of cases so I think that that's probably where the the difference is that on the surface it looks like every every country is having the same problem but underneath I think the UK's problems could be a, a degree of magnitude worse. Anush what, what do you think? Yeah I think you're right I think lockdowns really are an opportunity for putting things in place so that if you do have to lock down again it's less chaotic it's less panicky it's shorter it's less restrictive and it works in lockstep with your other responses to to the pandemic so the government had the opportunity in the original lockdown to put statutory sick pay up to bolster public health resources which have been cut for the past 10 years to make sure that tests get turned around within 24 hours as was the pledge for all tests to be turned around by the end of June, to make sure that people can afford to isolate and that that there's no glitch that means that they don't actually automatically have access to to the financial support that's supposed to help them through that 14 days or or seven days. You know, there's all sorts of different things that the government could have put in place during the original lockdown, but instead it seems to have preoccupied itself with how do we make the furlough scheme less generous for when we can start opening things up again? You know, how do we start trying to claw back the money we've we've spent in this sort of arbitrary way? How do we incentivize people to go out and eat during August? I just think they've been fiddling around the edges of the economy instead of actually thinking of the longer term, less punitive, less blunt responses that they could have put in during this time that would have meant that it was less painful and also less chaotic this time round, shutting down, you know, reversing or updating the tier system so many different times, scrapping it all together, saying that there absolutely shouldn't be a national lockdown and opposing Keir Starmer's call for it, opposing what the scientific advisors to the government had been calling for for a while, and ultimately, you know, allowing these plans to leak so that the public feels extremely unsettled for a while until the press conference comes, you know, hours late. I I just think all of these things are really bad for people's trust in the government and also their mental health as well. You know, it's just there could be a better way of announcing these things, planning them and going about them, even if, you know, this lockdown is necessary for all sorts of reasons that they just haven't really got a grip of. And that means that, you know, there was always going to be a proportion of the population who don't agree with lockdown as a response to this, of course, because, it, you know, it has ruined people's livelihoods and 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 it has made things difficult for their relationships and, and their mental health as well. So there was always going to be that section of of society who don't think that the government is doing the right thing. But by the government being so untrustworthy and breaking so many pledges and targets and and reversing and U-turning and, and stopping and starting so many times since March, I think that has degraded its trust among a more significant proportion of the population than was necessary. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And it kind of, it comes back to what I think is the sort of really interesting thing that we know we don't understand, which is as you may have noticed, although I guess actually I realise statistically the average listener will not have picked this up on it because they won't have been doing this last time. Last time, in the final week before lockdown, I mean, so for example, final week before lockdown, I was on holiday and you know, for a variety of reasons, we, we didn't cancel it. But basically everyone else in the hotel had cancelled it. The evening before I went out for a work dinner and similarly, like it, London was a ghost town. I went out for drinks and dinner with some friends, yeah, to sit outside a heater. 
and the place was full. And on my way back, when I was walking home the last little bit, there were loads and loads of people walking home who'd done the same thing. Now, the question I have is, is that because of the mistakes that you described so well, Anoush? Is that because people have a perception about their relative lack of risk? Is it a combination of both? And does it have implications for how effective another lockdown will actually be in terms of curbing the spread of new cases? Who knows? Yeah, I've been noticing that in my own behaviour too, that definitely, I, I was thinking, queuing for Sainsbury's the other day, I was thinking about how I used to find it so annoying if people queued too close to me and weren't observing the markings while standing there on the markings this time and just thinking about how much more relaxed about those kinds of things that I think that there has been a big spread of opinion on, on all of this since the, the very beginning of the pandemic. But I think that probably in general, just the fact of living with it for months and months, when it was new, people were a bit more cautious. Definitely, I found it really annoying on the street if people walked too near me, whereas I don't really notice anymore because we know so much more about how the difference in aerosol transmission is so different outdoors that there's, you know, there's an incredibly low risk of catching the virus from somebody when you're standing outside in the open air. I'm sort of noticing those little behavioral differences in myself, even though like my, my position on most things has broadly stayed the same. And I think that that's probably replicated across society, especially because people know that once we go into this new lockdown in England, we might not necessarily leave it on the 2nd of December. And so even though it makes no sense from a health perspective to be, you know, getting in all your last trips to the pub and trips to restaurants in one big rush right before we lock down, I think that that is what what people may well do rather than last time, as you say, where everyone could see the trend in other countries, especially I think I mean, it was the case everywhere, but especially in Northern Ireland, where like the rest of the island was already in lockdown, people were voluntarily staying at home. And and also, I think because that was the public health message in America. And in so many ways, we not really anymore with the pandemic, but in those early days, the sort of the Instagram messaging and, and the messages from like any American public figures that you'd be aware of was to stay at home. And I think people in the UK started staying at home for kind of that reason, the international influence of it. But people don't want to do that this time. Yeah. I think what's interesting is that there's been certain differences with this lockdown to the last one that actually tell you quite a lot about where the government stands. So I had an email from someone who's been shielding this this entire time, who I spoke to for, for a piece a while back this morning, and she was saying, well, look, they've completely abandoned us now because what they've said is, no, we're not going to ask people to shield again, which, you know, sounds nice on the surface of it. It sounds like, great, you know, I won't have to be locked up in my in my home like I was at the beginning, perhaps with, with not very much of a support network around me and feeling lonely, etc. But actually, what she was saying was she felt like it was so that the government wouldn't feel obliged to put anything official in place to actually support them. What's interesting is because it's winter coming up and people are going to be at home much more, their bills are going to be much higher on top of how high their bills actually were over the original lockdown. You know, she was saying that she she was dreading her utility bills coming through the door during that lockdown. This time round, with the the cold of the winter, it's going to be a lot worse. We're actually working on a 
piece mapping fuel poverty onto the areas with the highest coronavirus rates in the country at the moment. But what's interesting is they did miss out any sort of plan for those shielders kind of saying, of course, you should be extra careful. And it almost sounded like, well, we want you to stay at home, but we're not going to tell you to stay at home. But please don't, please don't leave the home so that our hospitals don't get overwhelmed by people who are, who are vulnerable. And I thought that was quite telling. And similarly, I know, I know we've all said it before many times, but there's, there's been no suggestion of, of increasing statutory sick pay either, which, which I think seems, seems very strange to sort of be digging your heels in on what would be quite a small amount of money. I think that those things sort of tell you where, where the government is really, which is, I think they're still trying to tread a middle path and they don't want to be seen to be picking health over the economy or the other way around. I know that sounds ironic because they are locking down for a month, but I still think if you look at the detail, you can see kind of what they've chosen. And of course, it's a false binary anyway, because when you lock down, people suffer from non-COVID-19 conditions a great deal more, which we've covered quite a lot on the New Statesman. And you have a sort of growing mental health crisis along along the way. Yeah, and I think the policy argument is, is I find, really, really interesting now. I mean, I think a lot of it is done without a lot of nuance and in quite bad faith. But I think the sort of the way it's increasingly splitting into a sort of pro or anti-lockdown position is interesting because as someone who since Sage recommended it has has sort of personally thought that we absolutely should be going for a, a short circuit breaker and we should have done that over half term. I suppose I'm like the sort of the archetypal pro-lockdown person, but I'm not pro-lockdown really. Um in the like lockdowns are policy failures and blunt instruments to bring the the trend of cases down rapidly when you need to relieve pressure on your test and trace system or on your health system's capacity. But it was really clear, I think, over a month ago that this was an approach that we needed to take. But yeah, I, th- I find it funny that that it's split that way. I mean, the, the point about people who are against lockdown is that really no one disagrees, that everyone knows that this is such a blunt instrument that it will cause huge economic harm as well as being really bad for people's mental well-being, terrible for other health reasons maybe less so than last time in terms of like we've discussed this on the podcast before but a large part of it it wasn't just people staying at home because they were worried about the overcapacity of the NHS but also people sort of not having confidence that if they went into hospital with something that they wouldn't catch the virus because they rightly looked at the you know the trend of a lack of PPE and so on and felt that it would be safer to stay home with their minor injury or to just sit on a lump that they had found or something rather than taking immediate action on it and maybe people will have a bit more confidence this time that they can go into hospital and hopefully PPE supplies and so on will be better so that won't be so much of an issue but I yeah I think that the objections that people raise to lockdown are totally valid. I think that's the the kind of strange thing about this debate that, you know, there was an op-ed by Peter Hitchens over the weekend, which was sort of making the arguments basically that everyone agrees with, but in perhaps slightly bad faith to make the case that, that, that we then don't need to take this course of action. 
when um, it's very clear that there's literally no other option at this point for England, that if we just continued on this trajectory with a tiered system, that there would be no NHS capacity in any part of England for any reason, COVID or non-COVID, by the week of Christmas. And in certain parts of England, that would be the case from mid-November. We're sort of at the point where your ideological position on lockdowns is slightly irrelevant, but it isn't stopping people having their ideological positions on lockdowns. But I think it's funny that you can leverage certain objections in certain ways. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call You You Ask Ask Us. Us. Very good. We're going to do something non-lockdown related just to keep some variety to the podcast. Our question for this episode is, how do you think Angela Rayner is performing as Labour's deputy leader? Anish, what are your initial thoughts on how she has been performing? Well, I mean, when I saw this question, the first two things that came to mind were two stories about Angela Rayner recently that crossed my reading about politics path, which was that she was chastised for calling um, a Tory MP scum in the in the Commons during a sort of particularly heated debate. I think it was a couple of weeks ago. So that was what came to mind. And then another thing that came to mind was following the anti-Semitism report, she said that Jeremy Corbyn had an absolute blind spot and denial when it came to anti-Semitism within the Labour Party. Now, the fact that those are the two things that sort of immediately spring to mind suggests to me that actually she perhaps hasn't been as prominent as you would have expected a sort of politician of her particular talents and appeal to be, particularly in the role that she has, which I think speaks to a sort of wider maybe issue with the shadow cabinet and the Labour leadership in general. I do think that the idea for Keir Starmer, particularly with the use of sort of Andy Burnham and Lisa Nandy over the dispute over Tier 3 in Greater Manchester, was to try and introduce voters to more impressive Labour figures or Labour figures who are who perform well on the media. And I would say, I would argue, and I'm sure it's arguable, but I'd say Angela Rayner is one of those sort of impressive media performers and hasn't been used as much. And that suggests to me that the plan to try and broaden the Labour Party's appeal beyond the sort of popular figure of Keir Starmer isn't properly underway. And it's been patchy trying to introduce the public to sort of the new face of the party. 
So that's a broader interpretation of the question, but that was my first thought when I thought, what what's she done recently? One of the positions of consensus between Tom Watson and the Labour leadership by the time that Tom Watson stood down wasn't the deputy leadership post should be got rid of mm-hmm. because it doesn't do anything. It creates, as you'll know, right, from having covered two deputy leadership elections, right, it's not like anyone asks any questions about things that the deputy actually does and have relevance, right? People just treat it as like another leadership ballot. A lot of the time it is just a vector of instability. And so I think on that metric, I think like she has to be said to have done things well because she is not increasing instability at the top of the Labour Party. She did like a good job of filling in and kind of offering them like a slightly different outlet on the same message. And during periods of political stress and difficulty for the Labour Party, she has maintained her sort of political proximity to the leader and has avoided a repeat of the sort of destabilising division between the two participants that that characterised the last five years and um, to a lesser extent and characterised the 2007 to 2010 period. I guess I would say I think she's doing quite an effective job in terms of the role of deputy leader. I still think it was a mistake if you were Keir Starmer for a number of reasons actually to make her party chair rather than to give her an actual brief not least because I assume at some point the Labour Party is going to have a bit of a fight over its immigration position. And if I were Keir Starmer, I would rather have like someone who's a separate entity of me than have like, I don't need to at all in an anti-Nick Thomas Simons way. He's a very bright guy. You know, he's good in the Commons. Yeah, actually like fairly experienced considering he hasn't been in Parliament that long. But ultimately, when Labour has controversial positions on home and security issues, and you can see this playing out all the time now, right? They become wholly owned by Keir Starmer regardless of whether or not that is the truth of it. And that means that they do not have a kind of broad-based political consent within the parliamentary party. But yeah, so I guess I think she's doing well within the context that it's like a bad job that people shouldn't have. I suppose my first reaction is that Angela Rayner is definitely an asset to the Labour Party and to this Labour leadership. So I think you're not wrong, Anush, in that she probably could be used better and could be taking on a more prominent role. But I think that when she has made public appearances or when she made her speech at virtual Labour conference, beyond the kind of the technical aspects of her role, I think it's it was clear from that speech and from other interventions that she's made in the Commons the kind of broader role in terms of messaging that she will play in Labour's strategy going forward. What I mean by that is that I think that she is the perfect representation of the kind of message that Labour under Starmer wants to be pushing in terms of wanting to be a party of sort of bread and butter issues and trying to sort everyday issues out for people on the ground, making a tangible difference to people's lives and worrying a bit less about, I know we talk about this every week on the podcast, but but worrying a bit less about the issues that divide voters on cultural things. So still having a position on, on race and LGBTQ issues and feminism and so on, but not making all of the Labour Party's messaging about that and focusing much more on economic issues. I think that she's the sort of perfect vector for that message because she herself was a beneficiary of so many flagship new Labour policies when she was growing up and then when she became pregnant 
at 16 with her own son. She can speak really, really movingly about the impact that a Labour government can have on a person's life in a way that I think is very unifying because that's that's such an important part of, of, of Keir Starmer's message that like having grand ideas about what you would do in power is absolutely meaningless if you if you can't get there. I think that that's a, that's a, a message that Angela Rayner embodies. I also think in terms of how she's been doing more recently, I think that she's possibly a bit more unifying than Keir Starmer is in small ways. I thought she did a really interesting interview with Newsnight and after the EHRC report. And I thought that, I mean, I know that you were you were citing Anush, an interview that she had done earlier that day where she was saying that she thinks that Jeremy has a blind spot on on anti-Semitism. The Newsnight interview was after that. I'm not sure it's an interview that she would actually be that happy with because of the exact line of questioning. I feel like it probably wasn't one that she'd be pleased with. But I think it was a good example of actually how she kind of tries to toe more of a middle line than Keir Starmer does in terms of, I think, trying to sort of understand that lots of people who are still members of the party will have come to Labour under Corbyn. And I actually don't know the figures on this, but I think that, you know, people who voted for Jeremy Corbyn and then voted for Keir Starmer, like that must be a quite considerable chunk of the Labour membership, given the mandate that each of them had. And I think that she's quite good at, I think, not alienating people who would have been Corbyn supporters. And I think she does kind of embody that role of someone who, you know, speaks warmly about Jeremy, but also speaks warmly about Keir. She doesn't distance herself from Keir Starmer at all. But I think that Newsnight interview was a good example of her being less keen than than Keir Starmer to just put loads of water between herself and the previous Labour leadership and and to to adopt a more conciliatory approach. But I think the interesting thing is I wonder what the person asking the question was thinking of in particular because I know you mentioned it Anish but that scum incident where she called a Tory MP scum across the House of Commons chamber when she was sitting at the dispatch box that was quite controversial and got a lot of news pick up it hasn't really altered my assessment of how I think she's doing because I actually think, I mean, I don't think that you should call people scum in politics because even if that's your your view of parts of the Conservative Party, I don't think it's very helpful for our political discourse if you implicitly concede that sometimes it's a case for like more abusive language. I think that comes back to bite you when we live in such a toxic political culture. But I do think that large parts of the Labour supporting base won't mind Angela Rayner saying that, particularly on the issue of free school meals. What do you think about it, Anish? It's poor use of language. And and I think that anything that politicians can do to dial down the sort of division and sort of hostility that we have in politics today is is welcome. So I don't think she should have said it and it was right for her to be sort of chastised for saying it. But in general, in the chamber, she has, other, other than that incident, she has been quite impressive. I remember when she stood in for PMQs for the per- first time and she she did do really well. And, and it was interesting because it made clear that she's not only seen as quite an impressive performer on sort of her side of the benches but I think you wrote wrote this up at the time but Boris Johnson sort of completely changed his approach to PMQs for that performance didn't Mm. he that shows you in itself that probably it was more about the optics of like you wrote I think sort of a a northern working class woman you know facing up to an ex 
Etonian Bullingdon club type in Boris Johnson, obviously they thought, well, it's not going to look good if he's sort of hectoring and doing his usual irritable baffled routine in front of her so he did change his approach but also I think it does it is sort of flattering to her isn't it because it suggests that they thought okay she's quite a good performer and we've got to work out a way of taking the sting out of her questions so I think yeah I mean I come back to my original point that she was good then clearly she's seen as an impressive performer on both sides of the house and therefore she's kind of been underutilized but as Stephen said earlier that may be the constraints of the role that she's in as well. Thanks for listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Al Ray, my colleagues, Anusha Kellyan and Stephen Bush. We're produced by Nick Hilton and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks for listening. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.